0: energize the lawn friend podcast is brought to you by hustler hollywood your one-stop shop for all things erotica with 11 stores across the united states our sexy shelves are stocked with dvds books lingerie vibrators butt plugs lubricants fetish gear and bachelorette party supplies at hustler hollywood we know that sex is free We only sell the accessories. If you're at our flagship store in the Sunset Strip, located across the street from the world-famous Rainbow Roxy and Whiskey, mention Energize and you'll get a delicious discount on something delightfully dangerous. LF and LF, Lawn Friend and Larry Flint. Energetically connected for more than 30 years.
1: Scotty, Energize.
2: Energize. Good Yontif America. Happy Pesach, Happy Passover. Good Friday was the other day and I know it's a, it's another bunny-eared holiday where all the cultures join and the spirits join and we feel good about being one. Jews, Christians, Hindus, Midgets. We're all we're all one. Right? This is Lawn Friend. I know you thought that I like, was off the air. Well, I was, but now I'm back for tonight. Because this is Energize the Lawn Friend Podcast. And Mike Stark, my producer on the other side of the glass in San Pedro, California, LA Radio Studio. Live streaming. Thank you on this April the 14th, 2014. I have a full show. I have a very good friend, a man who has... Well, he's, he, he's he's a bit younger than me, but we have almost as many stories to tell because <laughs> he's had a, a journalistic journey, uh, which definitely rivals mine in a different space. He has walked with kings, and he has slobbered with queens. <clears throat> so I'm going to begin this. Before I introduce, I'm going to begin this with some graphs paragraphs that I wrote in my uh, 2011 memoir, Sweet Demotion. The chapter was entitled Life on Shuffle. Quote, dude, I found this amazing place in Hollywood, wiggled Rob One Tree Hill. A former editor at Bikini, FHM, and Giant Magazines, Rob and I went back about 15 years. He was more akin to an adopted little brother than a student. My dad knows the builder. New York-style construction, concrete floors, 20-foot ceilings, really elegant. Dude, if I rent the place, can you give me a few hundred bucks a month for the loft? It's got its own bath and walk-in closet. You'll love it. And so began my first roommate situation since attending UCLA, not to mention the first time I'd ever resided east of Doheny Drive. Rob hadn't shared a pad with anyone since he cohabitated with the dysfunctional childhood pal he nicknamed Malkovich. A troubled silver Coke spooner known for crawling out into the Manhattan sidewalks hammered off his ass at 4 a.m. in search of giant burritos and toothless Puerto Rican hookers. The Malkovich Enclave was a Lilliputian-sized loft with a three-foot ceiling at the top of the stairs. I slept in the cubbyhole one night, which truly did bring to mind being John Malkovich in the most disturbing, claustrophobic way. The ancient building on 2nd Avenue had been converted from a hospital at the turn of the century. That's the condo with some historical chops. Ryan Adams lived down the hall, which is where he allegedly wrote the haunting Lament the Shadowlands, one of the most exquisite, sorrowful ballads ever composed, and the theme of my insides for a good part of the 2000s. The night he left New York, Rob Hill listened to the entire U2 Doors catalogs, his two favorite bands, while boxing up things of his life. He headed to a downtown storage unit with no sleep, grabbed two kraut dogs and a papaya juice at Manhattan's legendary Grace Papaya, went out into the random downtown bar for a drink where he picked up a girl right off the pages of the magazines he once edited. Dude, her ass smelled like cinnamon, he texted me that night. I didn't even know her name. It was right out of Last Tango. He then headed to the airport where he was trapped for three days and nights in the JFK snowstorm nightmare that came to be known as JetBlue's Valentine's Day Massacre. Rob later recounted the debacle for an editorial in the LA Weekly, a journalistic gesture that awarded him a free round-trip ticket from the low-cross carrier. The Hollywood Loft, our Hollywood Loft, was elegant, super cool, had a real bachelor vibe. On paper, we were about to enter a robust period of female encounters, but truth be told, for 18 months, Rob and I rarely had guests of either gender. He was working 14 hours a day trying to build a new celebrity magazine called Hollywood Life, where he toiled nobly for a four foot six Russian millionaire publisher who summoned her slave editor to regular vodka and cheese meetings at her Doheny State's mansion. Anguished, Rob returned to the loft each night and greeted his mentor and roommate who was ensconced in random writing assignments for every medium and quadrant to keep his daughter's fees paid at George Washington University. We watched films like Fight Club, American Beauty, and John Malkovich. My propositions. We're not only my compositions were storybook, but, you know, there's more to this. Rob would sit like Jimmy Stewart on a tiny patio, the face rear window style courtyard and smoke those obnoxious mini cigars that stank up the place from outside the building while swilling cans of Foster's ale as Bono, Edge, Larry and Adam provided the background theme to our nightly depression. Once a month, we dropped the Big Lebowski into the DVD and drift away into the tumbleweeds that opened into the film. Regardless of how much deeper I was going into debt, living the freelance life, or how much deeper Rob was descending into his own depression, working for an unconscious woman demanding unconscious content for an unconscious magazine that was doomed to fail in an encroachingly doomsday economy. Two hours with Walter, shut the fuck up, Donnie, the dude, and Brant were therapy for us. He thinks the rug pissers did this. (laughs) We text each other lines from the movie, and it made us happy. They were the best of times and the worst of times. And this is a great time. Rob
3: Hill, welcome to Energize. It's great to be here. <laughs> wow. Dude, we had, we had... I don't think I've ever heard that out loud before.
2: <laughs> I'm closing the document now.
3: Wow. <laughs> oh, my God. You didn't mention the Scientologist that lived below us either, who was also our landlord. Who was into the alkaline water because his wife died of a really rare disease. Right. Yeah. Brian. Brian. Yeah. He's still there, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um,
2: Rob came down to Long Beach today, and we he, he, I turned him on to his accountant, Joe Wilson, who's an eccentric in his own right. Straight out of a Ray Bradbury book. <laughs> and... I, I I found Joe Wilson because I I saw one of those 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 uh, sign spinners on the corner of Seventh and Redondo, <laughs> and it led me to a girl named Wendy, who led me to who 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 knew uh, Joe. He, J- J- Joe to me is more like like Henry Bemis from the Twilight Zone. You know, he he's this brilliant guy.
3: Well, you were just there getting your taxes done today. Well, he's stuck in 1972. You know, you walk in there and like the furniture and everything. Um, There's three cats dozing on the ground. He was eating a ham sandwich and a V8. And he did your taxes. And he did my taxes and explained to me that the magma underneath uh, Yosemite, if that ever blew, it would wipe out North America. Exactly. Yeah. So he does your taxes and he also likes to talk to you about the fusion of robots and consciousness and yeah. so that's why I think he's got a little bit of a Ray Bradbury thing going. Yeah, yeah. We like Joe. Yeah, Joe yeah. did my taxes, he did good. Yeah. So this is what leads
2: to a thread. You have you have profiled so many people in your career. You I mentioned a couple of the magazines. You were you were the guy at FHM during some very heavy years, didn't? So I'm just going to like Anecdote a couple out of nowhere so you can give people some reference for what you've seen and done. You didn't, weren't you in England with Rachel Weiss? Mm hmm. Okay.
3: So, um, I was working at a magazine called Bikini, which wasn't a bikini magazine, it was just more of like a sort of pop culture, fun, sort of kind of, uh, Irreverent Magazine. That was published in L.A.? <laughs> that was published in Venice, actually, okay. by um, Ray Gunn Publishing that did a music magazine, too, called Ray Gunn that was mm-hmm. pretty pretty well... Talking early 90s? 92, 93, 94, okay. yeah. Okay. So I got this press kit in the mail um, of this actress with these just incredibly, like, beautiful eyes. Nobody had heard of her. She'd done, like, one movie, I think. Mm-hmm. But she had a movie coming out called The Mummy. Okay, So I go into my publisher who had just gotten all these hair transplants and he had this like floppy fishing hat on and he looked actually every day. He really looked like um, more like a David Bowie character, but he had had these transplants done. So he was like kind of loopy and had this stupid grin on Mm -hmm. and I knew this was my time to strike. Mm -hmm. I said, I found our summer cover and, you know. He somehow signed off on it, and I got on a plane and flew to London on Virgin, and spent three days walking around the city with her and uh, bet you
2: were smitten, huh?
3: yeah, she um yeah I mean, nobody knew who she was. She lived in Prim- Primrose Hill, mm-hmm. which is now a really nice place in London, mm-hmm. and she had this like Laverne and Shirley apartment <laughs> that I met her at, <laughs> where you look up at people's ankles. And she was obsessed with Elvis. Yeah. So she had an Elvis room. She only had a two-bedroom flat, and one of them was completely dedicated to Elvis, and the other was her bedroom. And she went on to win an Oscar, didn't she? She did, in The Constant Gardener. Yeah. So Rachel Weisz. Yeah, yeah. That was her first cover, her first real magazine article. Yeah. And and another
2: girl who I came to love because I came to love the show so much was Elizabeth Cuthbert. Uh,
3: Elizabeth uh, Cuthbert. Cuthbert, yes, yeah. Yes, Cuthbert, mm-hmm. Um. Actually, the only I've probably booked close to ninety to hundred and twenty, somewhere in there, um, magazine covers, and I've given a lot of people their first magazine in your covers career in my career, yeah, including Rachel Weiss and Heather Graham and Penelope Cruz and Quentin Tarantino. Um, were these F- FHM? No, this was bikini, bikini, because wow. we were about finding the new talent. Okay, uh, wow. Salma Hayek. Right. Um, and out of all the people that I booked, she's the only one that called me in my office. Elizabeth. To say thank you. Because <laughs> there was a role in Hollywood. I think the movie was called Girl Next Door. Yes. With
2: Emile Hirsch. She's, she's in the Girl she, Next she Door. She
3: got it because of my cover. And they were very strategic because mm-hmm. on the show, she doesn't play a sex pot. Right. But they wanted to really show that she could do it because every young actress wanted this role, and they thought if they could get a cover of a sexy magazine, Mm -hmm. and then they had to send a box over to 20th Century Fox, and she got the role. They're like, oh, Oh. we get it. This girl can do it. Yeah. And so she actually called me in my office. She's Canadian. Yeah. Maybe that's why.
2: Yeah. They're more appreciative. Yeah. They are.
3: Yeah.
2: Wow. See? I had rock stars covers, and you had yeah. movie stars.
3: Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, people forget the power 15, 20, 30 years ago of, of a magazine cover. Oh, it yeah. was a really powerful, more powerful than going on TV because it was a two-dimensional experience, and mm-hmm. there was still a mystery there, and um, print still is powerful, but it's just sharing with so many different other things oh, right sure, now. that sure. Um, but to get a magazine cover, even 10 years ago, f- mm-hmm. seven, eight years ago, it was a really... Big deal. I think one of the yeah. coolest
2: things you ever did was you got those swimmers on the cover of FHM as the Olympics were ramping up.
3: And we worked on that about five months before. Okay, so put, yeah. put that into a yeah. chronology. That what year was this?
2: 2004
3: Olympics, I believe.
2: Okay, Summer Olympics. Summer Olympics. Yeah.
3: Um, FHM was, was kind of like a, uh, it was like Maxim, uh, mm-hmm. Playboy came over from England, um, and we were really into not just putting actresses and models on our cover. We would put, you know, um, you know, actually better to find someone a little off the beaten path, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I thought these swimmers would be a really... Because, you know, the magazine really went out to middle America, right. really. It wasn't really a magazine for right. the coasts. Right. Um, and so I just thought... Let's just let's like treat these Olympic women as sexy beautiful women like Sports you
2: know. Illustrated would have done. Yeah,
3: except they probably wouldn't have covered these girls because right. they do their swimsuit issue with models. But yeah, so mm-hmm. that was the idea mm-hmm. and it was a fold out cover. So we sold the inside I think to you know, I think Hugo Boss or some company and it was a fold out cover of the girls who actually wound up winning the yeah. And, it, and we were on the stands when that happened. They won the gold medal. They won the... And they were the story of that Olympics. Yeah. And um, and then they fired me. <laughs> and,
2: and, 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 what, and, and who was in New York at that time? I was in New York with my 14-year-old daughter, yes. right? And we went to lunch, and what did Megan say to you at age 14?
3: No, she said... She said to me. She said, Dad, why did they fire him after he just did the best thing they've ever had happen to him?" <laughs> <laughs> and try to explain
2: to your new, new teen... How Corporate America Works. Yeah. What a
3: challenge that was. Well, make, yeah. um, God, maybe I can answer that in about 10 years. Looking back, I just think that, you know, they they had paid us and initially. It was a $30 million launch. It was a big magazine. They were paying us a lot of money. We had done the heavy lifting for four and a half years now, and I think they just wanted to, like, shut off the spigots, yeah. you know? And yeah. just so they got rid of all the top people. Yeah. And But, yes, it was an irony that yeah. I left after I hit my you know seventy seventh home run of the year, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, thank you, <laughs> and you weren't on steroids,
2: no <laughs> which which brings us to like ten you and I both it's like ten years since we had like real jobs i mean you 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 we'll talk about the things you've done with treats and the uh the uh hemp expo, which is cool because it's you really put whatever Rob Hill does, and I'll say this because now I've known him going over 20 years is whatever he does, he does with quality. The way I ran a rock magazine and allowed freelancers to be the best at what they did, spotting talent, not just in the stars, but in the people who photographed and composed and followed the stars. That's, that's what this, that's what this man's expertise was. So, so the last few years he, and I've been like freelance floaters. But in those, in those years, you have had some extraordinary assignments and, I know that you write for a great magazine overseas in England, right? It's called Uncut, Uncut. which
3: is sort of like, I guess, a little bit of Rolling Stone meets Entertainment Weekly all wrapped up in kind of one thing.
2: Yeah, and I think a couple of those assignments are just worth, you know, sharing an anecdote or two. One is the Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah,
3: that was pretty cool. So they they, um, contracted me to do a section in their magazine called um, Flick by Flick which is where you would interview actors, actresses, and um, directors um, as almost time capsules. Mm-hmm. So you'd, you'd pick you know 10 or 12 of their movies, and then each of those would be the anecdotes from that movie. And Coppola is my favorite director, so that was the first—actually, that was the second one I did. I did Brian De Palma first, mm-hmm. but—so they flew me up to Napa Valley, and I got to ride around on a tractor with him I'm a vineyard Because he lives in the back of the vineyard. Right. Uh, but he was kind of like an Orson Welles figure, you know, because mm-hmm. or a Picasso figure, because I've interviewed a lot of kind of I don't want to say shallower rock uh, pop culture people, mm-hmm. but you know, younger people who mm-hmm. are just starting out that don't have right. a ref. A twenty four year old actor is not going to have the yeah. gravitas as Coppola, mm-hmm. and um, he he really that 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 was probably for me my best moment did you did you drink wine with him we did we drank wine and he took me into this room he has every time magazine and newsweek magazine since the first printing wow in in this in this room like a vault for ideas wow he is a voracious reader and life magazine Mm -hmm. and he lives in this victorian house beside his behind his um vineyard which he very proudly told me makes him one hundred and twenty million a year now, so he never has to deal with a <laughs> Hollywood producer ever again. Well, he broke the studio, yeah. so he's finances. Yeah. And I was up there because he was doing a movie called Youth by Youth, which was with Tim Roth, which was like a ten million dollar movie that he financed. Mm-hmm. So he was very eager to talk about that, and then we wrapped it into all the other movies. And um, he, uh, <clears throat> one of the thing I really liked about him was. He didn't gossip about people, but he just told you how things were. If Marlon Brando was a jerk to him, he was a jerk, Mm -hmm. but he loved Mm him. There was no kind of judgment Mm -hmm. with Francis. He was really, to me, like a total artist. Complete, you know. um, What kind of wine did you drink? Syrah. Syrah. Like he
2: suggested it.
3: Yeah, and, you know, he was was eating a big— when it was right out of The Godfather, he was eating a (laughs) big— pull a pasta and a wine. I mean it was like and he kept saying, you don't know oh, this is what he kept saying. He goes, You don't know how uncomfortable it is to be fat if you've never been fat. Wow. How uncomfortable it is to be in your body. And not until I've gotten to this age did I realize how uncomfortable Brando must have been showing up at Apocalypse now being that overweight. Yeah. You're cranky, you can't move, yeah. you're labored a little breathing labored breathing, and he, this is when Francis was pretty... He was making fun of his own weight. Yeah. Um,
2: but he loved life so much. He loved wasn't life. Gonna, he wasn't <clears throat> going to go on the Stairmaster.
3: No, he wasn't going to do that. Um, <laughs> and
2: You got to appreciate that, right?
3: Yeah, and he told me a great story about the Doors and Jim Morrison of how, um, how the end actually came to Into be. Apocalypse yeah. now. Um, He was sitting in the editing room, and they were sitting there, and, well, they went to school together at UCLA, yeah. He knew them a little bit. They actually, their first demo they gave to him, because he had made a movie called The Conversation. Mm-hmm. That, Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman, that did pretty well. And these guys were film students, and they were eager to get their songs into films. And they didn't really have much. It didn't really work out. Jim died, obviously, a couple years later. So they're doing this, and he's sitting in the editing room with his editor, and They're going, how do we open this movie? And the film editor turns to him and says, why don't we open a movie with a song called The End? (laughs) That's never been done before. (laughs) And he goes, The Doors, right? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, I think I have that up there. He had it there. I think between when Jim died and when this movie came out, which was like seven or eight years, the Doors had only sold like 150,000. They were dead in the water. Mm -hmm. Punk Rock had wiped them out. Mm -hmm. Um, They were not... The band to be reckoned with until the book in the movie, mm-hmm. the Danny Sugarman book. Yeah, no so one this, gets out alive. This really introduced me to the band and a lot of people of my generation of that song with Martin Sheen, you know, yeah, in the hotel room. Yeah, so that was kind of cool. Um, talked a lot about apocalypse and that was kind of his breaking part as an <clears throat> as an artist. He was either gonna really kill himself. He thought wow. he was suicidal. And it sounds like that film could have taken a lot of people down. Yeah, well it took Martin down. He had a heart attack mm-hmm. and um he mortgaged his house, Francis did. Mm-hmm. Um he almost got divorced. Um Dennis Hopper went a little crazy. Yeah. You know. So that was a very interesting movie to talk to him about. Yeah. Wow.
2: All right, man. Well that's sublime. Yeah. And that's that's wisdom. That's that's beautiful. Yeah. We're gonna play a tune, a doors tune. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about the ridiculous. We're going to get into the Tom Sizemore story. (laughs) Okay, this is Energize a Lawn Friend podcast. Bye. Energize the Lawn Friend Podcast. Spy in the House of Love. Doors. Who's playing bass, Robbie? On that, the band with no bass.
3: The band with no bass. <laughs> well, th- you know they had a couple. They had Elvis's bass player for a little while, Jerry Chef, mm-hmm. and then they had um, a few other guys that session uh, guys. Session guys that came in. That came in uh, but actually, Ray played <clears throat> the bass on the first album. You just um, and he played the bass with his left hand. Yeah. He had a double key, the fender keyboard, so he, that was the. Yeah. Underneath the doors, it was always that yeah. heavy Ray bass.
2: Yeah. So, dude, you get an assignment to do um, a story, a profile of an of of uh, an actor who you know has had a troubled time, uh, but has been, but has worked with some of the greatest modern directors. So you knew you were heading into some sort of a war zone,
3: huh? Well, I'd always wanted to write for Uncut um, in England because it's just really, really well-respected, mm-hmm. and everybody wants to be in it. But it's very difficult to get in the magazine. They're very clubby. Mm-hmm. So um, I finally got the editor who, um, on, who looks like Greg Allman. He's, he's an <laughs> older guy, very right. interesting guy. He's been editing the magazine for a long time. Got him... Um, bugging him, bugging him, months, months, months. He finally says to me, okay, I'm going to give you an assignment to see if you're worth a shit. (laughs) (laughs) And your assignment is to track down Tom Sizemore and get an interview with him for Flick by Flick. Mm -hmm. This is at a point when Tom has been running naked through streets in downtown Los Angeles smoking crack with hookers. (laughs) (laughs) But he's also was the star of Saving Private Ryan, Heat. right? Heat, um, Black Hawk Down. Yep. Um, you know he he really, I mean he hit he he hit a he hit a serious skid. He had a skid. He started dating the madam Heidi Fleiss. Right. They went a little crazy together. Right. So at the time when I was given this, when you were s- tasked, almost a Hunter S. Thompson type thing. <laughs> yes. I had really good publicist connections, so I actually found a way to get word to him. He didn't have anybody at that point. He wasn't working. Um, And the word came back to me. The irony enough is that Tom wants to see if you're worth a shit, (laughs) and he wants to meet you at the Sunset Marquee and interview you before you interview him. Okay, good. So I show up there, and he shows up. And, if it guys, if you remember him, he's kind of a big, stout guy. Well, he had lost about 60 pounds, so he looked like the singer from um, Stone Temple Pilots. Mm-hmm. Um, Wiley Yeah. And he had a little skull cap on. He did mm-hmm. not look like Tom Sizemore. He looked like a, a little skinny rock star. Right. And he made me, you know, <clears throat> and he came with a minder. Some guy who I had no idea who, why he was with him or what he was doing. but we talked, after him, driving. Looking after him, driving him, probably trying to keep him sober. Right. And we talked for about an hour and a half, and he looked at me and said, follow me. Mm-hmm. I said, what do you mean? He goes, follow me. I was like, okay. So we walk out, and my car is up the street. And I started walking up the street, and he said, no, come with us. I was like, okay. We pile into this little s- Subaru um that looked like someone had been living in it. <laughs> and we get on the 10 East, and this is 2004 when, you know, Silver Lake was still developing and downtown was still the Shadowlands. It was mm-hmm. still really Blade Runner, mm-hmm. just <laughs> David Lynch. And, yeah, yeah um, L.A. Live hadn't gentrified yet. I mean, it was, yeah, I mean. No lofts. So we're we're, we are, we're just driving past Needle Row, really, essentially. Mm-hmm. And he lived in a, in a loft down there. And we go up to this loft, and it actually was a pretty nice loft, um, except you wondered how somebody who was making $3 million a year a couple years before lived in this loft and not, right. which he then proceeded to tell me how he lost his home in Beverly Hills. And so we get there, and he goes into the bathroom. Now I realize what he was doing. He was smoking meth. Mm-hmm. And he came out completely naked with the skull cap still on. <laughs> approached a microphone that was in the middle of his loft and turned on just the music to a Nirvana song and began to sing (laughs) the entire song.
2: He's consciously trying to freak you out or he's so fucked up he doesn't realize he's freaking you out.
3: You know, I um, I mean, there's mind games at work here. There are some mind games, but I don't think I realized the depth until I saw the celebrity rehab of just how gone he was. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's some things that I can't really say, but, um, you know, he did turn to me at one point and said six weeks ago, Robert De Niro was sitting right where you're sitting on that couch telling me that if I don't get on a plane, his private plane and fly to, uh, with him to Arizona, he was never going to talk to me again. Mm -hmm. Um, To rehab. To rehab. You know, he had done a movie with with De Niro and Val Kilmer on Heat, Mm -hmm. Heat, Michael Mann movie. And um, he told me that the second they said cut on that movie, he was thrown into a limo by Val Kilmer's bodyguards and um, basically taken to rehab. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these guys were his friends. They did care about him. But at this point, I think, you know, he had had spun off planet Earth and he was down in, you know— in some bad shape down there, yeah. But you know, I started to get a little worried because the guy disappeared, and he was our dry. He was. I had no way home, and <laughs> you're not in a
2: good neighborhood. I'm not in a good neighborhood,
3: and Tom is getting more increasingly uh, agitated and crazy, and you know, telling me stories about presidents and uh, and, and presidents. You know, yeah, personal just, stories. Um, presidency of the United States you know, that he claimed to have seen and witnessed. And it was kind of like a weird part, fiction part. Pulp fiction? Yeah, it was a pulp. I mean, there were grains of truth. You know, he told me he had shot heroin the first time with Kurt Cobain in a a bathroom in in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of things coming out that I look back now that made great copy. Yeah, I don't know how much of it was true. Mm -hmm. It was tough to know with him. He was really gone. Mm -hmm. And... um. So then he fell asleep, and there I was. <laughs> <laughs> Did you run? I actually didn't really know where I was downtown because at this time I was living in New York City. Mm-hmm. So I'd flown out for the interview, and I think I was on like Seventh, and I mean I was like kind of in Skid Row, and you know the the building was sort of a, a little paradise surrounded by hell. Yeah. You know, so um, I really. Didn't want to leave. I didn't know. A, you can't really catch a cab down there. Right. I didn't even think I had a cell phone at this point, and um, <laughs> so I picked his phone up and I called my sister, <laughs> Help. who came down and picked me up at three thirty in the morning. <laughs> See, these this is you the know. spice of being a journalist. Yeah, well, you get to enter through these worlds and then leave them. Yeah, you know, like the book we did together in Las Make Vegas, Naked Ambition. Know. That was fun to do. An X, R-rated
2: look at an X-rated industry. Yeah, yeah.
3: And then we got to leave. Yeah, we know? got to leave. We didn't.
2: Yeah. We interviewed porn stars at the at the convention at the uh, <clears throat> what was the award show they had there? AVN. AVN awards and 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 you you see I had that was my beginnings of my career so I understood that that alternative universe that they lived in. This was brand new to you, the the porn world. You
3: were fascinated. I didn't expect the mothers bringing J- their daughters there. That I didn't to really. Jada Fire fingers. fascinated yeah. you. I can squirt twenty yeah.
2: feet. <laughs> <laughs> who were, who was the most interesting interview? Because we split them up. Because Michael Greco gave me that gig, and I said, "I need. I can't do this by I myself." I think it was the
3: Malaysian scientist that had created that dildo machine. <laughs> That they were hired by the hospital for women who had never had orgasms, and they created this. But m- they they were they thing. were
2: like NASA scientists. Yeah,
3: no, they were scientists, and they, they had, and they had created this thing that it's in the book. It li- literally looked like a record player with like a Thomas Edison <laughs> light bulb on top of it, <laughs> which which was a dildo, <laughs> which 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 was a vibrator. Yeah, that was like five hundred hours five hundred dollars an hour to rent. <laughs> <laughs> And they would have dildo parties, but they, it worked on these women in, in uh, it was either Singapore or Malaysia or somewhere over there. You know, it's a, a
2: synchronicity of this is I'm thinking about our our Hebrew friend, Andrew Fish, who's also in that chapter because we managed an apartment building together in my oddest times on Beverly Glen. And he, he, he was, I called him the rabbi because he would teach me about the holidays because I had forgotten everything I learned when I was a kid and I was... And Andrew Fish, today is Passover, and I te- he texted me Happy Pesach, and he's like his spirits in the room
3: with us. He'll love us forever because we gave him the secret password and key to, to get it to the eyes wide shut after party. Because we were just so spent, we didn't want to see any more girls, no more. <laughs>
2: and we gave him the password to the party yeah. that where you really had to know Ron Jeremy to yeah. get
3: in. <laughs> Where it was literally an orgy and people <coughs> swinging from, you know, it was like a thirty-five hundred dollars suite at the Mirage, and that's where they just blew off their. Andrew, stadium, remember you
2: know? Andrew's face. Yeah. Like, when do we see him next? Did you? Did you? Did you get in? Was it okay? Oh my god, guys. Yeah. I got it. I don't even know where to begin.
3: <laughs> yeah. And then we had him tell us a little bit about the party, because we had to write a, an afterword we wrote an about afterward. the party, yeah. even though we didn't go. <laughs> yeah, we didn't go. I said, well, you were our witness. You were our boots on the ground. Well... I would wake up in the morning. It was so brutal. I think it might have... It didn't snow, but it was really cold because we were there in January. Wait a minute, dude. And there'd be a Xanax. We had, I, a, I would and put a, a
2: Xanax and an emergency. And emergency. Yeah. A, a, I would put a cup of water with yeah. an emergency and a Xanax on your nightstand. Because
3: we would have to be <laughs> at the convention from 8 to 8.
2: Right. Talks. Talking to people in this... I mean, and I have—I yeah. still have friends in there, but there is a reptilian energy to the porn world. There, it's—it's it's very much a, a insulated community. <clears throat> the, and if you're not born an exhibitionist and you're not born with that kind of na- sort of naked spirit, you—it's uncomfortable. So we go in as professionals. That's how I approach. We didn't it. do it any gig. partying at all. No, that I can no, remember. No, we partied yeah. every morning with the Xanax in yeah. an emergency. Yeah. <laughs>
3: What did we call it? Fear and Xanax in, in fear Las, and Vegas? Xanax yeah, in Las yeah. Vegas. I mean, it, I mean, it was it was like three hundred thousand <laughs> reptiles, cool what, reptiles. Yeah, like, cool. You, know, you know, yeah. What was the name of the?
2: Oh my! What was the name of the mother and daughter?
3: Yeah, that's the one I was thinking of that really stuck out to me because... They got in the business together. Yeah. Well, the mom was in it, and then she loved it so much... She brought her daughter in. The second she turned 18. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And she was a really pretty, like, five-foot... Yeah. The one thing that surprised me a little bit was that the... Physicality had changed so much from the porn that I remember in the yeah. '70s and yeah. the '80s yeah. that these these people, some of them, looked like movie starlets. Oh yeah, you know, it's yeah. a whole different thing.
2: And we both we both were smitten with Sunny Delight.
3: Yeah, so, Sunny Leone. Sunny Leone. Yeah, she looked like a. She was the best looking one. She looked. Wait well, like you no, know, Sunny Delight and
2: Sunny Leone. Sunny Leone was dark skinned Sunny yeah, Delight Bollywood. was like this sparkly blonde with this wonderful attitude. No, Sunny Lane. There this, dude, there's so many sunnies yeah. in the
3: porn. <laughs> and there was a Penny Lane, right? <laughs> no, no, that's a different oh, movie. Okay, okay.
2: No, let's not go there.
3: <laughs> yeah, so.
2: <laughs> okay, this is Lawn Friend, Energize, Lawn Friend Podcast. <clears throat> let's cue up Rob's other favorite band, you too, Mike, and then we'll come back and we'll talk some more about religion and sex and stars and... And maybe we'll get into Ray Bradbury, too. <laughs> oh, and Pot. We cover all the bases on this podcast. Shalom Alechem.
0: I'm in the black,
1: can't see or be seen
2: Energize the Lawn Friend Podcast. Rob Hill, my guest tonight, my friend. Um, we had fun at U2 at Rose Bowl, didn't we?
3: That was like... Uh, 2008? The Earth landing on the moon, yeah. or the moon landing on the Earth. Yeah. 2009. Nine. Yeah. Wow. That was... We watched
2: from the soundboard.
3: Yeah. That was fun. I remember Slash was there. Yeah.
2: And Bob Ezrin.
3: Bob Ezrin. He brought... He brought... Um,
2: he brought Daniel Lanois, and it was not long after Daniel Lanois had wrecked himself he almost on died. a motorcycle.
3: <clears throat> he almost died. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: And that, and but we were just, dude. I have pictures of us dancing. Yeah, that was. <laughs> and you're a little envious of me that I that I saw you two at the Country Club in 1980. Yeah, that was first um, show they ever did, boy. Yeah, in Los Angeles.
3: That must have been October of eighty. Nin- 1980. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you were still young. Then. Yeah. I was. I hadn't even gone to see Wild Child yet <laughs> <laughs> at the Whiskey-A-Go-Go. That wasn't until 84, 85. The Wild Child. Yeah. I met
2: that guy. Dave Brock. Dave
3: Brock. Yeah. Yeah, he does a good gym. Even at 65, he's still up there doing it. Shut up. Yeah. Really? And I still play the whiskey. He's got to be 55 or 60. Yeah. Yeah. He dies there. Yeah. Everybody does. Yeah.
2: Shit. All right. What would you say is the most challenging assignment you ever had? Not that Tom Sizemore was challenging, but maybe from a soul standpoint, like you, you had a lot of trepidation going in. Like maybe you thought you couldn't do service to this artist, because I mean these are these are extremely iconic individuals that you've had to, you know, mine and excavate.
3: It's never been a person. Actually, for me, it was the Big Sur article I did. For your treats. For treats, yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to really actually write a travel memoir article, travel journalism article, the best that had ever been written about the place. So I had put it really high on my shoulders, and I really, really struggled to get that one out. By the way, I should confess right here on the subject
2: of Big Sur and the author Henry Miller. This 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 lad is the one who turned me on to Henry Miller. <laughs> Remember? Yeah. You honey. handed me Tropic of Cancer yep. when I was getting on the on the plane to London in 2002 to work for Sanctuary Music, and I read the book on the plane. Got to London, was staying in on Gloucester Road. Having a, the first night I was there, I was having a hamburger. And a Guinness, and I took a walk because I was so mind blown by the voice that I had discovered. And there's a used bookstore four doors down from this pub. And I walk inside, and they have Air Conditioned Nightmare, uh, The uh, uh, Colossus of Marusi, and oh, one other. And I, and I read Henry Miller the whole time I was, and that, that informed a lot of the writing that i did because i did a lot of writing in england even while i was working with sanctuary i did a lot of writing there and i just want to thank you publicly whether you know this is heard by the masses or the minute you you've really fucked me up with that rob really? thanks yeah I you know like, i apologize like to I didn't megan have a, and <laughs> like, joyce like i didn't have enough <laughs> yeah. trouble finding my own voice (laughs) you had to send me this this man but you know rob and i over the years we've had many discussions how come no one's made the modern documentary about henry miller because we believe we believe he is the greatest american
3: yeah i think so much especially with that book but with just all works of art whether it's an album or um book movie it's when you see it right when you read it when you hear it right um you know, I just remember being in that Kmart when I was 14 and a half years old, and in the, the book bin while my mom was shopping was this fiery orange paperback with this guy that looked like a Greek god on it, and it was the No One Here Gets Out Alive book. Yeah. And, you know, I think me and millions of other people at that age just devoured that book. You I, know, we were just ready for it. That book,
2: I got that book on the way to Richmond, Virginia to visit my dad... And my new stepmom, when I was like 14. So, this is years wait, this is not long after the book is released because it's early 70s. No, early 80s. Early 80s. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. so, this is yeah. like my third trip to Richmond, Virginia. And I read that book yeah. in the summer of that trip whenever the book came out. Yeah. And I went, whoa. And then, then, you know, in my career, I get to know Danny Sugarman later, which yeah. was really quite special is so, he, he yeah. something.
3: And it's so it, you know you think about um you know like our friend Harvey, you know, who's Harvey a big Kubrick. Yeah, who's a big Bruce Springsteen fan, you yeah. know. I'm an MTV child. So the first Bruce Springsteen song I remember hearing seen dancing, is in, dancing the in the dark. <laughs> yeah. That's and yeah. to Harvey that's a, not a great album and not a great song. No, we are born to run. Yeah, and you're born to run. Kids, so yeah. it's it's so much of it is that and you know, you found Henry Miller right when he was at the age of probably writing that book, roughly. Yeah, well, he died in eighty one, and he wrote the book in thirty four, thirty five, thirty six. So he was, you know, forty something years old. Yeah, about my age. About at and time. so he was writing that book when you were reading it that, at the same age. So that's you know?
2: possibly one of the parallels of this. Could be.
3: Whew. Yeah, you know, just think he was sitting in that four do- four Frank night. Yeah. little crappy apartment typing out those words yeah yeah it's pretty amazing
2: do, do you have trouble with people that aren't into the maybe women that just don't get the your heroes that that, that you're so far afield in that way that cuz we've sort of drifted off the radar in a way you know we we, we were real high visibility magazine people yeah. in, in our own decades
3: well i think with a lot of it is an age thing depending yeah. on how old of a of a woman that yeah. you're dating but um yeah. Yeah. um i mean i'm not sure henry miller is you know hip yep. i'm i'm surprised when anybody knows him yeah i'm not surprised when anybody knows although this is a funny story um last week me and my dad went out my mom is in the hospital so i've been trying to keep my dad sort of occupied we went out for some martinis and we were down at this restaurant um, having some martinis, and there was a guy behind the bar. who's was probably 25, 26. And my dad and I were talking about um, what Bono has been doing in Africa and, uh, you know, the Red campaign and the One campaign and all that. And we were talking about him pretty – because my dad's Irish, and he <clears throat> loves anything Irish. Of course. Irish. He takes yeah. you to the Notre Dame yeah, game. exactly. Every year. <laughs> and the guy behind the bar – Asked a question, and we said something, and he looked over at me, and he goes, Are you talking about the guy in the blue-tinted glasses? I mean, that was his only reference point for Bono. The guy yeah. in the blue-tinted glasses. Yeah, which I just thought was a really interesting comment on... He's he's kind of looked at now the way maybe I looked at Elton John when I was mm. at a certain age or something. Like, mm. um mm. I don't know. It 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 was it was kind of shocking because to me he's just like a, a noun in my life. Yeah, you know, sure. and um, you know, so
2: because it, one of, one of the themes of my life is music that keeps you going through hard times. Yeah, uh, internal hard times, external hard times, and I know from living with you during those days, and then the aftermath of all these years that you and I have kind of been searching for shit. Uh, those two bands. And I have my music, yeah. you know, that bring me back to my core, to my center. We we lost without those tunes, man.
3: Those, those books, th- those albums were like books. Mm-hmm. They weren't songs. They were actually like, when I put on The Unforgettable Fire, that's like a book mm-hmm. or an era. Mm-hmm. It's not just a song that I listen to going to the beach, right, you know. Right. Today, I think it's just a little bit more what's <clears throat> in the moment right now which is that song, Going to the Beach. You know, it's just a different form of... And so that's why I think it's just increasingly difficult for a band like you 2 in their 50s now to make an album that someone who's 22 will buy. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's hard. And they're probably one of the only acts
2: left that can even approach that.
3: You know, I just saw the Michael Hutchins movie, and I was thinking the three bands that I remember coming up with who all kind of were the same age, same everything, whereas excess, U2, and R.E.M. Mm-hmm. Yeah. U2's the only one that's still around, and they're fighting for their like mm-hmm. musical lives right now. Well, so it's just a different... I don't... <laughs> it's the longest it's taken them to make an album... It's been seven years. They usually make an album every two or three years. Yeah. They've really struggled with this one, and they've been pretty public about it. So it's pretty interesting. Do you like working with the pot convention? You know, I but, got, but you had a dysfunctional leader there, right? Yeah. Well, we, he was early in. A lot of times when you're early in, you, you, you get spit out first. Mm-hmm. So he was doing these conventions in 2008, 2009, you know, fifteen twenty thousand 20,000 people were coming. This mm-hmm. was before it was legal, mm-hmm. when medical was just being accepted. Mm-hmm. And he basically hired me and said, I want you to make a magazine that's a cross between Rolling Stone, Esquire, and High Times. Mm-hmm. And that's what we did with THC Exposé. Mm-hmm. And – um just in the four years since then, five years, it's like so you got two states where it's legal, two states where it's legal, and you got you know preachers and congressmen and I mean it's the 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 dominoes are falling so fast right now mm-hmm. uh, there are
2: parallels uh, everywhere. I think it's a good time to play parallels, Mike. I was gonna save yes for later, but it fits, and you know me and themes and synchronicity. And then we'll come back. We'll talk some more to Rob Bill. This is the Energized Law and Friend podcast. It's Passover. L- open the door. Let Elijah in. The mighty Steve Howe, the professor, yes, going for the one uh, parallels. You know, when I saw the last time I saw Yes, I took Megan. It was like four blocks from where you live <laughs> at the uh, at the um, Egyptian. No, that uh, beautiful theater down Orpheum. The Orpheum. Yeah, but we saw Yes do three three albums. Oh, that's in their right. Entirety. I think I
3: met you guys for a cocktail, didn't? That's I? That's right. Yeah. They did. They yeah. did. They did the Yes album, going for the one. And uh, close to the edge. You know, all those old burlesque theaters downtown are being now um, redone as, like, uh, commerce spaces. Like Urban Outfitter just took over the Rialto. Mm -hmm. But they kept the theater, the shell of the theater. It's pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Change.
2: Yeah, man. (laughs) Do you find it like I... Well, we know this because we talk all the time. But we just don't go to as many gigs as we used to. I... Getting out, it takes I, I more don't force.
3: Feel like live music. I don't know. I mean, you know, you've been through more decades of it in Los Angeles, but I don't feel any scene for live music well, at all that, right now. I don't know. Do you? I live in Vegas, right?
2: Now. But LA, I didn't. There wasn't a scene. Not the scenes like I covered, a chronicled. Yeah, eighties debauch scene. I sunset. mean,
3: Sunset Strip was the center of the world. Though. Yeah, center. Yeah, yeah, the
2: center of destruction.
3: Now I guess it's Silicon Valley. <laughs> Is that where there's a scene? I have no idea. Everybody wants to create apps these days. I don't think people pick up guitars maybe anymore. I don't know, man. (laughs) Sometimes there's a Brian Wilson song from
2: Pet Sounds, uh, Beach Boys. I guess I just wasn't made for these times. I'm a few years older than you, and sometimes I really don't feel like I fit in here
3: at all. Just go to the Joe, the accountant's office, and you'll you'll <laughs> you'll, you'll feel very very comfortable there. <laughs> well, I do. That's why he does my taxes. There literally was a cactus, a a, uh, a cactus cooler there. <laughs> Drink that was it was pretty amazing, and a pib, <laughs> Mister Pib. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I mean he was eating a literally an a net food Funicello sandwich <laughs> it's pretty amazing oh dude oh. what are you working on now what's keeping Robbie busy <sighs> grunion running on the moon <laughs> <laughs> that's my memoir which is a combination of my articles that I've written with some memoirs that's a good title' thrown in yeah so
2: Grunion Running on the Moon, the metaphor is you're down you're down at the surf waiting for this mass of, of life to, to hit the beach, but there's no life on the moon.
3: No, it's kind of the vacuousness of celebrity, too. <laughs> oh, that, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, also yeah. just getting paid all these years to kind of screw around. I mean, yeah. it, it is hard work, but at the same time, you know, I mean, it, it is a job, but, you know, it's it's certainly... Um, I take any kind of job Better than working out, you know. Dude, I I got paid, you know, a little
2: bit of money to help out in production at the Long Beach Grand Prix. That's yeah. why I'm in town.
3: Be, and also, I get to see Paul Rogers, which is never a bad thing. I make my money today mainly by just picking up and taking friends to the airport. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm that guy. And you get the panic calls from yeah. all your
2: dysfunctional
3: friends. Yeah. The chicks that if are... If someone has a root canal, I'm there. <laughs>
2: And what do we say? These are our days of service. We're in service. Yeah. See, Rob and I made a lot of money over a decade. I mean, he his salary was we had we had equivalent salary, and you were in New York, and we're living the life. And I was here, you know, married in Los Angeles, living the life.
3: It's all like, you know, that was then. This is now. Ebb and flow. Yeah, boy, it is a heaven hell of an ebb. Reading the other day, the cabin that Henry Miller lived in when he got back from- Big Sur? Yeah, from Europe, and right when the war broke out, I think he was paying $30 a month, and it just sold for $57 million, that parcel. In Big Sur? In Big Sur, That piece of land. That piece of land. That's how early he was. He was there from
2: 1949 to 1965, and there was no plumbing in Big Sur in 1949. There, there was Nepenthe, and Nepenthe had some power, and it would then the beginnings. Well, of he had to dig his own restaurant. well. Yeah, you know what? What vision? Just to go there, yeah. just to just to take that that artist, pure artist journey, that writer's journey into a forest
3: undeveloped. It was so thorough. What he literally did. run by the f- like like fur hunters at that point. Yeah. people out there killing bears. You know. Yeah, and here was this like. Crazy bald writer. Yeah, now if you have 10 grand, you can go
2: to Esalen for three days and get spiritually awakened by yeah. yoga princesses with granola underpants. <laughs> wow, we've evolved. Never forget T-bone Burnett saying to me after he takes a hit off of this enormous joint: Lon, you got to go to Eslin, man. Go to Eslin. it'll wake you up. And I pretty much have been awakening on my own. I've invested in yoga. I took you to see the guru once.
3: He had frogs in his backyard.
2: Yeah, Guru Singh.
3: A lot of frogs. A lot of frogs. Yeah, spiritual
2: beast. Yeah, they represent something.
3: First species to leave the water for the land. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. that was his metaphor. Yeah, yeah. He's. uh, I think he made a hundred million last year. It's pretty good for a shaman. (laughs) Hundred million? Who made a hundred million? Guru Singh? No.
2: Shut up. Guru Houston made hundred million. (laughs) Guru Singh did not. (laughs) Oh my god!
3: I just laugh every time I drive by that studio because you know I think it's like eighteen dollars a session now or something. Yeah, I I started in eleven bucks.
2: Well, that's caught you know, but the overhead's huge there. You got to get new mats every five years, (laughs) and you got to pay those. You got to pay those yoga girls. I
3: like those forty (laughs) dollar candles. Those are really cool. We're not being cynical. No, they're from yak butter tea from, from the Himalayas. It's really, they're amazing. You Do you like those? Yeah, they're cool. If I'm flush, I buy them. But, Rob Hill, I know this
2: about you. <clears throat> you you don't even boil water in your no. home. You, you, I do have a tea you kettle. You have never prepared your own meal. I do have a tea kettle. <laughs> he, we, we had a really nice loft with this modern kitchen, and he never bought anything home but the can of Foster's. Never, no food, no yeah. edible. Dude, want to go? Want to walk up the street and get a hamburger? Want to walk up to the patties, Flaming Patties?
3: <laughs> get some eggs. The one next to the laundromat. And, and I'd say, and the, and the Rob, yeah. we're not in New York. Yeah. I can make something. I, I, I can cook. Or Joyce would bring the venison over that she had killed with a bow and arrow. <laughs> yes, my ex-wife yeah. was a skilled hunter, huntress. Yeah, the venison chili would last forever. Yeah. Remember when she shot that squirrel?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Out of her window. She just texted me yeah. all pissed off that, I can't believe you're in town and you didn't tell me. Well, technically, I'm in Long Beach. Yeah. I'm
3: not in town, okay? Not your town. And you took me over the bridge for the first time in my life. Yeah, and I'm a Southern California. I'm, I'm born and raised in Santa Monica. Well, you tell.
2: Know? Well, what did you think? Because that's the bridge that to- the director Tony Scott... leapt from in August of 2012 uh, or in summer of
3: 2012 you uh, met Tony Scott my first journalism assignment ever for Bikini was to do a day in the life of the youngest AD in Hollywood assistant director who I think was like 24 that's a big job you know you get paid a lot of money and it's the second biggest job On a movie set and he was Tony Scott's AD and he was doing a movie called The Fan so I'll never forget this I was driving a silver Scirocco Volkswagen Scirocco at the time and I was told to meet at 5 a.m. at the parking lot at the LA Coliseum because that's where they were shooting and I was going to get to watch Robert De Niro shoot a scene in a souvenir stand and I pulled up and they had set up base there and about 2 minutes after i pulled up came this yellow hummer with furls of cigar smoke coming out of at 5 a.m. and it was tony scott in a in a in pink dolphin shorts <laughs> a, a a wife beater <laughs> A hat, eating an egg sandwich and smoking a cigar, (laughs) all four foot nine of them, (laughs) jumps out of this Hummer. And it was like Napoleon had arrived. (laughs) And he ran that set and he was, it was really cool to watch. Um, You know, he was one of the most, just from the one day I spent with him, vital forces of energy I've ever encountered in my life. Which really surprised me when I heard about. I, he would be the I would the last person that I think to jump he would do off that bridge. Yeah. And we don't know the whole story, but he worked twenty-two hour days, and when he wasn't uh, uh, there for those twenty-two hours, he was at home thinking about those twenty-two hours. Mm-hmm. It was uh, well. He has a, it made me not want to go into the movie business because yeah. I just saw these people live these wow. nocturnal, strange. Eco, there it's like you're in your own little bubble for four months, mm-hmm. working twenty hours a day. You don't mm-hmm. know if it's night or day, mm-hmm. and um, so that was going over that bridge it really because I kind slow, of really I had to slow sad. down at yeah. the
2: top of the bridge, and I said, from what I've read online, the police report and other things, he stopped his car at the top of the bridge he 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 got out of the car, he climbed up that wire fence, and he yeah. just jumped, yeah. And there is—I've read very little about explanations or
3: notes or anything else. I I think he was the older brother or the younger brother of Ridley. Ridley. I think he's the older brother, but I'm not sure. Okay. Um, But, yeah, the the funny thing was is that uh, he—I'll just—God, he was just (laughs) this—he was the kind of guy that if you were going to get off a boat on a beach— where people were shooting at you, mm-hmm. you'd want him with you. Really? Yeah.
2: He had a a powerful presence.
3: Yeah. Really. I mean protective and powerful presence. And smart and mm-hmm. well, kind of scared to be around. Dude, he, he, was, he made you know, great films. Yeah. He um, made great I just
2: watched The Hunger a couple of weeks yeah. ago. David Bowie, Catherine Deneuve. What an interesting, odd vampiric film, long before vampires got so hit. Yeah. Really so. And you said you, before I even told you, I didn't ask you to come on the show. I said, dude, you're coming on the show because you're coming down to have your taxes done by Joe Wilson. (laughs) You go, dude,
3: I just watched Top Gun. I hadn't seen it since it came out. And it came on one of the shows, I think maybe Sundance, the very beginning. And, um, I mean, that was the first Tony Scott movie I I remember seeing. And uh, he... It, it made me think of him because it, here, here's the really strange thing is the guy that I wrote the article about <clears throat> wasn't about Tony. It was about this guy. And he worked on every film since then for Tony, eventually moving his way up to become a producer and becoming, you know, a very important sort of wealthy movie producer who started out as just like the mm-hmm. youngest AD. Mm-hmm. So –
2: I met Ridley Scott once. Peter Gabriel's after party, Staples Center, Up Tour. Oliver Stone was there. Because Gabriel's revered by Hollywood. So many of his songs have been at iconic moments in films. Where does Gabriel live? He lives in in Holland Park, London. You don't ever really hear much about him. In a very humble house. Nothing ostentatious. Because I know people who have sat with him in that house. When I met him for breakfast in 1999, he walked from his home to meet me. It was in it was at this little uh, hotel. It was like a downstairs cafe. He he has a radiant presence too. He's not like an insane presence. He has like a shamanic presence. Is he kind of a shut in? No, No. I I think he's just uh, he's just you know, like uh, not from this world, man. (laughs) Like so many are. Do you know it's a bl- it's a blood moon? I uh, there's a there's a blood moon blood lunar eclipse. The tax man told me, yeah, yeah. So it's 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 a special moon, and it's Passover, and and who knows? It's affecting all the peoples of the world. So I think maybe we'll call it a pink moon tonight, Mike Stark, and we'll listen to some Nick Drake, a great Englishman who died before his time but left us some beautiful tunes. This is energize the Law lawn Friend Podcast.
4: And so it's safe
2: Energize the Lawn Friend Podcasts. Um, I'm not on weekly for a while. We did our 50 second show about two or three weeks ago. It was our, it was the one year anniversary? And then I, I you know, I've, I'm living in the desert, so it's hard to do them on Skype. And I like being here in the studio where I can have people come in and have really clear audio. And I could look at Mike and go. Play Nick Drake next. And it's it's just professional and cool and respectful. The audience deserves this. But until I find a new sort of situation, you're not going to hear from me every week. So this is good. And it's, uh, it's Passover. If you remember your biblical literature, and since we're on the Hollywood tip, Ten Commandments. Moses was born the son of Hebrew slaves. He was going to be killed so his mother put the baby in the in the basket she floated him down the river and she in, in the fair and 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 he was he was picked out of the water and taken in to the royal egyptian to, to, to the belly of the royal egyptian home and he became a prince but he really wasn't that prince he was the he, he was the messenger. He was he was the, the deliverer. Now I was born th- the summer that Ten Commandments was released. Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments was the summer of 1956. The summer I was born. So I sort of was set. I was I was set in the basket at that time, and I've been floating down the River Nile for the last fifty-seven. 56 57 years that's a powerful metaphor isn't it Robbie yeah floating down the river you know yeah. you know what that is yeah huh? yeah yeah what do we do where do we you know where we pick our spots where we hop off the bank
3: that's probably why the f- my f- first book that really ever meant anything to me was heart of darkness by Joseph Conrad that's a very where do you get off that river
2: which brings you to Francis Coppola.
3: Yeah. But, you know, uh, it's interesting. You grew up uh, or you lived a couple of doors down from Ray Bradbury, didn't you?
2: Yeah. Cheviot Hills. Yeah. He He lived around the corner. He lived in that house for 50 years. And he was my neighbor. And I spent time in that house. I mean, these are people whose paths I've crossed that I'm not even, to this moment, fully aware of how much they infused into me. The need to uh, chronicle, compose, illuminate, because we were just reading from this Bradbury book I brought along on writing, and you're, you're like, quoting stuff, and it's right in the pocket.
3: And it just, you know, reminds me so much of um, another person we love, Rod Serling. Yeah, very much. On those days when it's raining on the inside, it's it's kinda cool to sit there and watch those zones back to back to back to back, yeah, back yeah. to back. And 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 that loft we lived in, which brings us back to where we
2: started this evening, it was it was on Hudson and the ne- the next street north of us was Willoughby. My favorite zone. And it was my late mom, Barbara Friend's favorite Twilight Zone. Yep. And I recently had to get my, um, my driver's license changed to a Nevada license, and I had to go to the DMV of Nevada, which is equal a clusterfuck as any DMV in Los Angeles or Long Beach. <clears throat> it's a universal clusterfuck, the DMV. They haven't figured out that out yet. But I had to have my certified birth certificate. So I find it in my file. And I look at it for like the first time ever. I pay attention. Oh, yeah. That's where I was born. Cedars of Lebanon. Bringing us back to Moses. Cedars of Lebanon. On Fountain in Hollywood. And then it has uh, my mother, Dawn, and Barbara, father. Dawn friend, mother, Barbara friend. Place of residence. 7267. Willoughby. Yeah. I was born on Willoughby. And the metaphor of the of Willoughby is Willoughby's the end. Willoughby's where where that advertising executive with the ulcer who couldn't stand life who just wanted a simple place and and he found it on that train when he fell asleep and astral projected back to the eighteen hundreds and there were kids with fishing poles and band concerts and cotton candy and that's where he wanted to be. And when he woke up, he was back with that shrew wife of his and. That boss was screaming at him, and he he said, "I just want to be in Willoughby." And my mother used to call me every freaking Twilight Zone marathon. Are you watching? Willoughby's on. Yeah. And that's where she is. My mom made it to Willoughby, and I was born on Willoughby. And I and I'm trying and then you to live, put all this yeah. together.
3: <laughs> and then you lived a block from Willoughby. Yeah,
2: that's it. And I'm and I'm on a time travel theme, too. We're figuring that out. Look, I think Rob and I can we'll say this in unison. It uh, being a writer is a magnificent uh, responsibility. It's it's a it's a great charge, artistic charge, but it's also uh, it'll fucking wear your soul down to the core. It's it's uh, he hasn't written memoir yet, but he's. What he's telling me, you're kind of creeping into that zone because you want to share with people the articles that you've written, and I think that's a good thing because you have, you know, made some great journeys with some really interesting folks. He's also a terrific writer, and he could write anything. You know, Rob could. His, sometimes his his texts are just so great, dude. Dude, we fucked in a cemetery. <laughs> A Civil War cemetery. <laughs> I wish I had some <laughs> of Okay. Anyway, but
3: thanks for coming tonight.
2: <laughs> I
3: got you speechless, brother. Um, I don't think <laughs> Sherman was buried there, but it was, it, it, it was in Savannah, Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a crypt. <laughs> okay. Yeah, let's get yeah, semantical yeah, yeah. here.
2: It was a crit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Brian Ferry played uh, Coachella this week. He played in Las Vegas. My brother went to the show at the Pearl. He said it was one of the greatest shows he'd ever seen. Brian at age 68 or 69 has, still has the swagger. I saw Roxy Music at the Hollywood Palladium in 1975. I've loved him my whole life. And I just, after seeing Paul Rogers... I just want these old dudes to keep playing. And I'm going to see, speaking of old dudes who are miracles on stage, I am going to see Motorhead next Thursday night. That is my friend Lemmy. He was born in 1945. He hasn't been physically that well the last few months, but he will be on stage with his four-string. He'll be belting it out. So I think we'll go out with some Roxy music, and we're just about done. We are done. This is Energized Lime Friend Podcast, Passover edition, special edition. Rob Hill. Thank you, man. Thank you. L- no, L- Namaste. Love you, man. I I mean, I really do. Yeah. Like, like that movie. I Real. love you, man. I do.
3: It's not really about the Chinaman, but... Dude, let's queue up Lebowski. (laughs) You know, uh, really quick before we go, Jeff Bridges is hosting Lebowski Fest at the Wiltern this year. Yeah, and you you sent me a text today. You said, I'm terrified of Bridges, and I thought you
2: didn't want to cross the Vincent Thomas. (laughs) (laughs) And and I said, Jeff, question mark? You go, yeah, dude. I go, well, we're going across the Vincent Thomas. That bridge, too.
3: (laughs) I actually meant that bridge. (laughs) I thought you meant Jeff bridges, Bridges. no. But I did hear it on the radio on the way over that he that he was he is gonna actually host it. Wow! And, you know, we did go to one, didn't we?
2: Yes, you know. but it wasn't good. No, it wasn't good. No, that, you know what we did that night? We said this isn't
3: good. Let's go home and watch the DVD. I actually think we went and got a beer at Hooters first. <laughs> dude, I never <laughs> go to Hooters
2: ever. But now the owl metaphor yeah. came yeah. in recently, and so now I have to like look at Hooters all different. It's like <laughs> it's more about the owl, because you know my mom passed; we her ashes were cast, and I heard the owl of the oak tree. How could I possibly draw a parallel between my late mother and Hooters? <laughs> well, I hope you've I hope you've enjoyed this show because you may not hear me again for a <laughs> while. Mike Stark, thank you. Let's go out with some Roxy music. It's Lawn Friend Energize. Thanks, peace, Shalom aleichem. <laughs>